is all Last time on The Spectator, we flashed forward from 1957 to 1978 when Lonnie Kane and John Whiteside reopened the Molly Zelko investigation in the Joliet Herald News after almost 20 years, learning about the nearly forgotten story from Lynn Lichtenauer. Just because. To color the story, the reporters took unorthodox means to ferret out leads, including turning to psychics, performing seances, and even placing an alleged eyewitness to Molly's burial under hypnosis. Astonishingly, this eyewitness's story was later corroborated by others, placing a storm drain on Joliet's Stryker Avenue as a compelling, but still unexamined, clue into Molly's whereabouts. From the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library, this is The Spectator. The chances are your chances are home and the Joliet Herald News sitting on my kitchen table and I see this front page story or this little cartoon if you remember the first story and I pick it up and read it and it's by John and 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 Lonnie and it's about Molly Zelko and it's about how this woman saw somebody dumping something on Stryker Avenue I says really here I am a mystery fan and here's one right in our own backyard that's mystery buff and organized crime theorist Dennis Henrietta once again. Despite national publicity in the wake of Molly's disappearance, Dennis was one of thousands of people who learned about Molly Zelko for the first time as a result of the Joliet Herald News series in 1978. I ran our family tavern at that time, and the, the local discussion at the bar, the water cooler talk, was you know, it was either sports or the price of corn or the weather, you know, up until that. But this the story that John and Lonnie had put out had taken over, and it it was a a discussion, and everybody had a theory. Oh, I know this. My dad used to work at The Spectator, or my my uncle worked at this construction company, and they all knew what happened. But, you know, it was quite quite the thing. So, one morning, the next morning, I was cleaning up, getting ready to open, and had an old guy come in that come in every day. He was a local, and he was a outdoorsman. He was a hunter. Fisher, Trapper, Supreme. Only one in there. Think of Frontier Fremont or Grizzly Adams. Big guy. And uh, the newspapers from the night before were sitting on the bar. And the guy's name was Wilbur. I says, Wilbur, I says, you were around back then. You remember this Molly Zelko story? And he turned white. He looked over his shoulder one way, then the other. I'm sure nobody was in there. And I could barely hear him. He was whispering. And he says, I think I seen her. This chance encounter with an alleged eyewitness would instill a lifelong fascination with the Zelko case in Dennis that resulted in years of research and a captivating theory as to not only what happened to Molly, but why it happened. What do you mean you think you've seen her? You mean you've seen her in, you know, in Joliet? He says, no, I, says, I think I've seen her after she went missing. Boy, I says, let me sit down and you tell me. And he did, and he told me a story about how him and his friend were out out on a local strip mine pond, frogging illegally, which you did at night. 
and the shine the flashlight in the water and they saw what was a tarp or a canvas they thought it was a boat tarp rolled up maybe six feet long and uh, they got spooked because there was someone with a light not far and they were trespassing and they thought well maybe it's the game warden didn't think anything of that till about the next two days the story was all over she disappeared I think on a Wednesday or Thursday over the weekend it was it was the big news and uh, they decided not to tell anybody. But they told a couple friends and the local sheriff from the sheriff of Cole City and maybe Grundy County. And they went out there and actually dove and couldn't find anything, including the tarp that they saw. It was gone. Dennis has spent 40 years independently researching individuals linked to the Molly Zelko story. And he's actually still at it today. The web, or thread as Dennis likes to call it, is just that big. Years before mass digitalization made easier work of research, Dennis spent countless hours at places like the Joliet Public Library, pouring through binders and peering at microfilm containing thousands of pages of newspapers in attempts to crack the case. He has independently vetted virtually every theory and player involved in the disappearance. Through his research, Dennis quickly discovered that some of the most thorough reporting about the details of the case in 1957 came from a reporter far removed from the Chicago area, Ted Link of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. One of the biggest uh, investigative reporters of the 50s, other than Sandy Smith at the Tribune, the Tribune did a lot of stories, was the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's Ted Link. Ted Link was a Pulitzer Prize winning criminologist in, uh, out of St. Louis, but his beat was Springfield, Illinois. And his style out of the 40s going into the 50s, he was the typical tilted hat, you know, trench coat guy that, but he had, he had uh, informants in the mob and he had informants in City Hall. And he played both against each other. And his theory was, his, theory, his, his word on the grapevine was that she's in the pits. Lonnie Kane also credits Link with incredibly thorough reporting in the days following Molly's disappearance. You know, the Chicago media did a good job on this. They, they, they were on it. But I think the reporter that did the most digging and, and was like a hound dog on this was Ted Link. And if you look at what he did for uh, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, you'll see that he was the guy who was covering the mob. Uh, and he had connections. Uh, he, was, he was well connected, uh, maybe too connected, I don't know. He killed a guy. Yeah, yeah. He, he has an interesting, he's a story in himself. But he, he came up here and, and did some digging. He's the one who actually, I think, found uh, the bid rigging tape and turned it over. Uh, and he concluded, I think one of his concluding articles is what you just referred to, is that uh, Molly's in a pit somewhere, uh, somewhere south of Joliet, uh, because that's what the mob probably, that's what, kind of what they did with people, cement shoes type of thing. Uh, and he just kind of concluded that that's probably where she's at. In the colorful language of mid-century reporting, Link made the following conclusions about Molly's disappearance. Quote, Police have explored the syndicate angle in the search for a clue. A young element is now in control of that shadowy crime organization, the Chicago Syndicate. Like the Mafia, the syndicate has tentacles reaching into many communities, St. Louis among them. This younger element has muscled into the coin-operated machine business in northern Illinois. Headed by Sam Mooney Giancana, this criminal group has made an appearance in Peoria, Springfield, Joliet, 
and along the Illinois-Wisconsin line. Some of its leaders were seen in Joliet shortly before Molly Zelko vanished. Expensive automobiles, the type prized by gangsters, were observed in the tree-shaded streets near the mansion of Francis Curry. These are the new syndicate members, the successors of the Capones, the Guziks, Campanias, and other old-time Prohibition-era gunmen. Did Molly Zelko, the spinster newspaper woman with the large diamonds and the soul of a crusader, get in their hair? And did the Capone youngsters take their revenge on a woman? Recently, a report has reached members of the Post-Dispatch news staff. The Underworld Grapevine has carried a message that concerns the event of September 25th in Joliet. Members of the Underworld are congratulating themselves on the kidnapping of Molly Zelko. She was murdered, according to the Grapevine, the night of her disappearance, and her body was disposed of in an abandoned mine near Coal City, Illinois. There are a number of water-filled abandoned mines in that area. To search them properly would require the resources of the state and probably the federal government. The Grapevine carried a postscript. Old-time gangsters considered it bad business to take revenge on representatives of the press, with an occasional exception in Chicago. The word has now been passed that reporters are no longer regarded as untouchables by the new mobsters. Zelko went into the pit, so may some others if they get in our way, the postscript reads. Link also reported that an anonymous phone call was made to the home of Molly's brother, and before hanging up, the caller said chillingly, if you want to find Molly, you better be a good swimmer. So now you've always kind of told me that you think Molly's story is kind of three acts. Can you kind of just give an overview of, sure. of those sure. three I, acts? Sure. It's, it's a classic three-actor. And the first act is on Molly the Crusader. Who was she? What was her true crusade? If you, you read any article about her when she disappeared, every headline or byline or the first paragraph, Molly the Crusading Reporter. Crusading reporter, Molly, Crusaders on every sentence. I think it would be part of her name. So Molly's Crusade is Act 1. Act 2 is the mystery. Who wanted her gone? Who could have made it happen? Who would cover it? Very simple. Act 3 is what they do with the body. Has all the elements of a classic who done it. Why'd she have to disappear? Who could have made that happen? Who had the power to cover it up? Classic. And you can go into all her enemies. Her enemies were local but they had ties internationally and nationally. This is one of the most important points about the mystery. Molly's enemies did not exist in a vacuum. They were intimately connected with very powerful and sometimes very dangerous people. As we've explained throughout the story, Molly had firmly made enemies among the holy trinity of business interests, political affairs, and organized crime, which reached far outside of Joliet. To rephrase what we told you in episode one, the lines between these entities were much more blurry in 1957, and very often, simply one and the same. This places us squarely in the final act. As Dennis goes on to tell us, the implication of where Molly might be leads to an even more compelling part of the story. Why the Molly Zelko case was never solved. Dennis has one of the most fascinating theories in an already amazing story, which connects everything we've talked about. It's not just compelling because of how far it goes, but that it's actually plausible. And I met with you about a month ago and I told you that I think she disappeared because 
a gangster in East St. Louis punched an IRS agent. And, and that's the fun part telling this theory because... Dennis goes on to tell us this punch in the face was the first domino in a complex series of events that directly implicated Chicago mob boss Sam Giancana to a brutal murder discovered in Joliet just before Molly's disappearance. This was at the same time, as we've told you, that Robert F. Kennedy and the McClellan Committee were placing a huge amount of pressure on the outfit. The punch in question was delivered by St. Louis mob boss Frank Buster Workman to the face of an IRS agent who had been trailing him. Unsurprisingly, this led to an audit of Workman's finances, which revealed he was funneling money to Illinois State Auditor Orville Hodge, who has since been referred to as the most corrupt government official in the history of the state of Illinois. And that's saying something. Hodge eventually pled guilty to embezzling a whopping $6 million from the state. This had understandably required Hodge to launder the money, doing so via a corrupt Chicago bank chairman named Leon Marcus. In addition to the state official Hodge, Marcus had some other high-level clients in the laundering business. He was quite a guy. Well, Marcos was all, not only the money launderer for Orville Hodge in Springfield, he was money launderer for Sam Giancana. Sam Giancana at the time bought a bar out on River Road called the River Road Inn, which was owned by Willie Dodano, Potatoes Dodano. Giancana wanted to take that bar and make it like Sinatra's out west where all the politicians and the mobsters could come and where they could have their meetings and on weekends their kids can come and use the pool and, 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 he, and he did he built he called it the Thunderbolt and the only thing was he bought it and built it with a fake mortgage from Leon Marcos's bank Marcos kept the paper in his pocket so now Marcos is in front of the grand jury on the Hodge case and they're investigating this money, and he goes to, he being Marcos, goes to Giancana and says, Sam, you gotta get me out of this case. He says, he says, uh, by the judge, kill the witness, do whatever you can, but get me out of this. And, and Giancana was on the hot seat from the mob because of his flamboyance. He says, I can't touch that. And Marcos made a real fatal mistake, and he says, well, if you don't, they're gonna find out where you got that money for the bar, and then I'm going to have to tell him all the other monies I gave you. As it turns out, suggesting he was prepared to blackmail the head of the Chicago outfit was a fatal mistake for Marcus. It was reported Sam Giancana ordered underboss Willie Potatoes Dodano to dispatch him. If Dodano's name sounds familiar, it was because the Green Hornet himself, Jimmy Reaney, who we profiled in episode four, had named Dodano in his quote-unquote jailhouse confession as the one who gave him the order to kill Molly, later recanting. The Marcus affair may well have ended there. But Dodano made the mistake of trusting the job to an underling, a corrupt Chicago Park District police officer named Sal Moretti. While the braggadocious Moretti got it mostly right, he failed to retrieve a receipt for $150,000 from San Giancana to Leon Marcus as ordered, which Marcus carried on his person as what he thought was an insurance policy. Yeah, you're supposed to grab the paperwork out of his pocket, didn't get it. Giancana infuriated as Moretti hit. They find Moretti's body dumped in Joliet on Caton Farm Road. So from Workman down in St. Louis to Hodge in Springfield to Marcos in, in uh, Chicago to Giancana out on River Road to Dodano to Moretti to Caton Farm Road. Now Molly does a headline. Another mob, mobster's body found here. They have the fuel here in Joliet to scare them. Here's one more loose end. Get rid of this reporter, the story ends. 
Incurring the personal wrath of Giancana and Dodano, the details of the Moretti hit were grim. He was found stuffed in the trunk of his car on the outskirts of Joliet, bound, beaten, shot, and strangled, with his emptied pockets turned inside out and the labels of his clothes cut out. The only possession found on his person was a comb. It was speculated that the dark pageantry behind Moretti's execution was a message about the importance of paying attention to details. Supposedly, the hit shook up even seasoned members of the outfit. The spectator covering the Moretti murder, even on its front page, would not have in and of itself condemned Molly, as the story was covered nationally, perhaps by design. However, this sequence of events established a strong precedent, inside and outside the syndicate, about the importance of loose ends, and as Ted Linklater wrote, demonstrated a new way of the outfit doing business, and a distaste for the old rules. This would have certainly emboldened Molly to investigate what was very likely local assistance in disposing of Moretti. The killing occurred just five months before she disappeared. So, if Molly's continual rattling of mob forces via spectator investigations wouldn't be enough to condemn her, what else would? Throughout previous episodes, we've discussed how the Mafia needed to replace lost revenue from Prohibition by a number of means. Most prominently, gambling rackets and coin-operated devices such as pinball. As well as with a strong financial alliance with certain labor unions, most prevalently the trucking industry's Teamsters Union. We've already explored the animosity between Jimmy Hoffa and Robert Kennedy, who was attempting to link these forces in his role as chief counsel to the McClellan Committee. Dennis goes on to explain how the alliance between the Teamsters and the Syndicate evolved to give both a newfound sense of power. The thing about the Chicago outfit in the 50s was as they grew through the 40s after Capone, they never really became the giant power that they were till they merged with the Teamsters to use their pension fund as their war chest. The Teamsters were Jimmy Hoffa. Um, back in the 40s when, the, when Paul Rico and Tony Arcado were rising up from what they called the New Capones, Hoffa did them a favor. They did one back. Um, Paul Dorfman, another mobster. Paul Dorfman's uh, wife had an insurance company and was able to get Hoffa to put the retirement fund or their insurance fund, it wasn't even a pension fund yet, in her insurance company with her son as the comptroller, Alan Dorfman. Alan Dorfman turned it into the pension fund and watched it go to zillions of dollars. But he was a Chicago outfit. They got their cut for doing that. And their cut was whatever he decided to take, which was a lot. So the Teamsters and the Chicago mob are married. Much like Joliet's Francis Curry to Paul Rica and the Chicago outfit, there was another Joliet figure who was closely linked to the upper echelons of the Teamsters, including Nahoffa himself. The Teamsters and Joliet, Joliet Teamsters at that time were the Floyds, Husky Floyd. And his brothers, uncles, cousins, sons, the Floyds and the Teamsters. In 1954, they were expanding. They were taking other unions, other cities, all these cities that had unions, trying to merge into the Joliet local, strengthen numbers, more people, more numbers, more money. And they were having trouble getting some to convert. In one particular instance, Virgil Husky Floyd and his two brothers were part of a delegation, if you will, to coerce newly formed unions in neighboring LaSalle County to consolidate with the Floyd Brothers' outfit-connected Joliet Union. Joining the Floyds was none other than Jimmy Hoffa himself. 
along with Teamster bosses Paul Dorfman of Chicago, who we just mentioned, Dick Kavner of St. Louis, and Roy Williams of Kansas City. The presence of these men undoubtedly underscored the importance of the consolidation, and reportedly, Kavner brandished a firearm during the negotiations. Despite the overwhelming majority of the LaSalle County Union members against the merger, in one case voting 694-7 to against it, through an organized campaign of bribery, intimidation, collusion, and misuse of trusteeship, the Joliet Consolidation was inevitably accomplished. The leader of the opposition to the consolidation, Barney Matchell, later told the McClellan Committee that Hoffa had confronted him privately, telling him simply, Barney, I get what I want. It was also revealed that before Hoffa's trip to Joliet, Husky Floyd had been convicted on a federal charge of extortion, and despite pressure, Floyd had refused to implicate certain other Teamster officials. I think Hoffa always felt he owed Joliet a favor. Be sure. You may be asking yourself, where does Molly fit in with all this? The answer may lie in the secret tape we listened to in our first episode, in which Molly wiretapped two representatives of rival construction companies discussing bid rigging. This investigative work went on to implicate the mayor of Joliet, Arthur Yannicki, who eventually pled guilty to a federal indictment of evading taxes on nearly $30,000 of kickback money tied to various public works projects. You'll remember Yannicki was eventually given probation, which Molly had vocally opposed in The Spectator shortly before she disappeared. But, as it turns out, one obscure sentence buried in a Chicago Tribune article announcing Yannicki's indictment may be the key to tying all of these local enemies together and unlocking the answer as to why Molly had to disappear. Quote, The jury reportedly also has been investigating the activities of Francis Curry, Joliet gambling boss, and Virgil Floyd, former business agent of Local 179 of the AFL Teamsters in Joliet. End quote. This short sentence could very well provide the motive for Molly Zelko's disappearance. It clearly ties Molly's investigative work in Joliet via Mayor Yannicki, Francis Curry, and Virgil Floyd to the much larger and much more powerful forces of the Teamsters and Mafia at a time when both were being heavily scrutinized by the federal government. The direct implication of Curry and Floyd to the federal grand jury investigating Mayor Yannicki thus effectively elevated a local political feud into a potential roadblock to the operations of the entirety of organized crime. Molly could likely survive her long list of Joliet enemies, but she may have underestimated their ability to collect on favors owed from these larger forces. It was, after all, a business of favors. Revisiting Dennis's three acts, we know who Molly was and what she was crusading against. We know who her enemies were, and we know why they wanted her dead. We may never know who gave the order, who pulled the trigger, or where her body was buried. But all of this raises a bigger, much more important question. Why were these questions never answered? Why was Molly's disappearance never solved? Want a man for president who's seasoned through and through, but not so doggone seasoned that he won't try something new. A man who's old enough to know and young enough to do. Well, it's up to you. It's up to you. It's strictly up to you. Kennedy was going to get Hoffa every day. Hoffa charged with this. Hoffa going to get this sentencing next week. On Friday, the story was grand jury to close. Um, Hoffa to be 
sentence. On Monday, he got released. Why did Bobby Kennedy let him off? The question is, working backwards, who had the power to make Bobby Kennedy change his mind? It wasn't President Eisenhower. He was over in Europe at a Cold War convention playing golf with his brother. It wasn't Jack Kennedy. Jack, Jack wanted Hoffa gone as bad as Bobby did. I think if the mob wanted Hoffa to do him a favor and they needed Bobby to get off his back, they'd call only one person that could do was Bobby. That was his dad, Joe Kennedy. Joe Kennedy had a history with the Teamsters going way back to bootlegging days, running booze out of Canada, built his wealth up. Joe Kennedy owed the Chicago mob. Joe Kennedy says, yeah, I'll get Bobby off his case. I can do that in one minute. And he has to tell Bobby, you know, let him go. Bobby don't want to let him go. He says, Bobby, let him go. You can get him later when you're in the White House. He says to the Chicago mob, will you do you this, but I'm planning on running Jack in primaries this fall. And for the president in 60, I said, I need your help, especially in Dallas and in Chicago. And they gave him the help. And those two cities got him elected. So to get Hoffa to do him a favor, they had to get Kennedy to do a favor. Could it be possible that Molly's disappearance was a bargaining chip in one of the most pivotal moments of the 20th century, the election of President John F. Kennedy in 1960? Dennis lays a plausible case for this incredible thesis. As he told us, there is strong suspicion that John's father, Joe Kennedy, brokered a deal to deliver votes for his son in Chicago with Sam Giancana. With the Kennedy brothers aggressively pursuing the mafia via the McClellan Committee hearings, any communication between the elder Kennedy and the head of the Chicago outfit would undoubtedly need to be discreet. However, the person identified as the ultimate middleman between the two was anything but discreet. In fact, he was one of the most well-known names in America. Everyone is voting for Jack Cause he's got what all the rest lack Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track Cause he's got high hopes He's got Yup, old blue eyes The chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra Sinatra's own daughter, Tina, claims that her father later recounted to her that he was the intermediary between Kennedy Sr. and Giancana. Sinatra himself was very public in his support of JFK, even reworking one of his biggest hits as a Kennedy campaign song you just heard. So, where does Molly fit into this? According to Dennis, it all goes back to our friend, the one-time confessed killer of Molly, Jimmy the Green Hornet Reenie, and his rendezvous digging holes with Bobby Kennedy. Reeney was a lot like Moretti in that he was a lower-level street street soldier, mob wannabe guy, always trying to impress, but not talented enough to do it the right way. Uh, Reeney was in prison, uh, I believe, in 58 or 59, Stateville, and uh, he saw the confession as his way out. He thought he gets notoriety. He gets credit for her disappearance, which elevates him in the mob, gets him out of prison, even though it would probably throw him back in for that. He might have a chance to get out. Or he was paid to to tell that story, send somebody in the wrong direction. His correspondence was with RFK, and they actually came down to Romeoville and 
and dug a few holes in a farm out there where Rini said that they took the body. I think it was all a photo op. I think it was all a farce. I don't think the United States Attorney General on a letter from a prisoner would come down with a shovel. I think you would have the Illinois State Police or the Will County Police or somebody do it. The problems with the Rini-Kennedy encounter are compelling, even obvious. First off, Rini, in detail, confessed to his involvement in the crime. He had been convicted of other acts of violence against rival coin machine operators and members of the media during the same period. There's also Kennedy's own brief and vague retelling of the incident, which we read in its entirety in episode four. In addition, much of the story, even as it was reported at the time, does not seem to make sense given the personalities involved. Robert Kennedy was one of the most visible political figures of the era. It is curious that at the height of the McClellan Committee, making him a household name and a beacon for law and order, he decided to travel from Washington to Chicago to personally dig for a body that, as far as he knew, was connected to a local mob beef. As Dennis stated, there were hundreds of subordinates who could have located Molly's body with Rini. If that wasn't enough, how could one of the best and brightest legal minds in the nation allow himself to be so easily duped by the likes of a mob underling like Rini? Especially when Rini's defense was essentially, I was just kidding. Finally, why would Kennedy willingly allow for this embarrassment to be nationally publicized? Despite being held in a maximum security prison, Rini was given an audience with the Chicago Tribune, one of the largest media outlets in the country, to recant his confession and delight in the fact that he had so easily tricked Kennedy. As Dennis implies, it feels manufactured. Certainly, Joe Kennedy would need a little more than the promise of a favor in convincing Giancana to help elect one of his most hated rivals to the highest office in the land. Far from dangling a carrot, the Kennedys would need Giancana to see them unsheath a sword. As Dennis likes to call it, a domino thread, which would take down Giancana, Hoffa, and possibly the entirety of organized crime. A thread that may have centered on the disappearance of Molly Zelko. We've already established that Bobby Kennedy was ruthless a criticism leveled at him even at the time. Certainly, he was also strategic. For a ruthless and strategic mind like Kennedy's, what might matter more? Settling a personal score with the likes of Giancana and Hoffa, or sitting at the right hand of the throne as Attorney General next to his brother, the President of the United States? If Molly Zelko was, in fact, used as leverage for a ceasefire, the truce didn't last long. Shortly after the election, Jack and Bobby waged an unprecedented war against the Mafia. Bobby Kennedy's Justice Department increased organized crime convictions almost tenfold in three years. As was true in Molly's world, it is possible that the Kennedys overplayed their hands and may have underestimated their enemy's capability for revenge. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible he has. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Rafer Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. That's it, Rafer. Get it. Get the gun, Rafer. Okay, no, hold him, Rafer. We don't want another Oswald. President John F. Kennedy, Senator Robert F. Kennedy, Sam Giancana, James Riddle Hoffa. Despite their earthly rivalries, all would be united in violent ends. The same appears true for Molly Zelko. Look somewhere above her, pretend you don't lie. 
Next time, on the final episode of The Spectator, we talk about where we are today, where our story ends, and where it will begin again. We'll tell you about the next chapter of Lonnie and John's quest. We'll ponder Molly's legacy in Joliet and within her own family, and end with our confidence that her story and our search will go on. The Spectator is a project of the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library. The podcast was produced by me, Greg Pierbolt, along with Joey Lieberman. Interviews were recorded by Keith Folk, head of the Joliet Public Library's digital media studio. Thanks to all our interviewees, Lonnie Kane, Lynn Lichtenauer, and Dennis Henrietta. Special thanks to Megan Millen, director of the Joliet Public Library. Additional information from this episode was taken from the books Eisenhower and Landon Griffin, A Study in Labor Management Politics by R. Alton Lee, The Rise and Fall of Jimmy Hoffa by Walter Sheridan, The Chicago Way by Don Harrian, and Vendetta, Bobby Kennedy vs. Jimmy Hoffa by James Neff. Additional audio archival material for this episode was obtained via the ABC News YouTube channel. Tears start to fall